Hello there and welcome to our podcast, Conversations in Noosa. My name is John Caruso. Statistically, 50% of couples, whether they're in a marriage or a de facto relationship, separate after seven years. And those figures have been like that for a long time now. In today's podcast, we talk to Christy Perdrio, a divorce and separation strategist from DivX. She's written a couple of books on the subject. The advice is general in nature. However, we cover some commonly asked questions when it comes to divorce and separation. The custody of children. Is the family law court skewed towards women when it comes to asset splits and custody? If so, why? What happens to pets? And is my partner entitled to my superannuation? That's ahead on today's podcast. We start by talking about Christie's involvement in the Royal Australian Air Force. Um, look, I'm actually still in the Air Force at the moment, if you want to be technical. A reservist? Um, yeah, yeah. Now I'm a specialist reservist. So I've been a specialist reservist for 12 years. How did I end up in it? To be honest, I was working in some law firms, um, sort of mid-tier firms. And even though I worked for somebody else, I felt like I wanted to be part of something bigger, you know, like whether it be the police force or the air force or something like that, you know, I wanted to be part of it, almost like a team sport, I suppose. But um, yeah, with working. So um, yeah, so I looked at joining the specialist reserves for the air force and it took me about two years to, to get in. So you've got to do all of the usual training that you've got to do, but yeah, 12 years. So I do um, legal work for the RAF itself and then um, legal work for the RAF members. So whether it be, you know, wills and estates or family law or um, yeah, different kind of things for working in your specialized field. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I do do family law things um, for them. But with RAF, you get sort of bits and pieces of different kind of work that you wouldn't sort of see in the usual um, real world as such. It, so can you give me an example? It could be things like um, visa issues for whether, you know, somebody from our country is supposed to be in another country. It could be things like you know, driving tanks on beaches that maybe we shouldn't be doing. Just stuff um, that regular Joe probably wouldn't think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, our regular Joes don't normally do the whole tank on the beach um, incidents that often. I really enjoy that unusual um, yeah. left field sort of law. Did you always want to be a lawyer? No. No, I didn't want to always be a lawyer. When I was in year 11 and 12, I didn't really know what I wanted to be. So I was never those one of those girls that, you know, grew up knowing I wanted knowing knowing that I wanted to be a princess or something like that. <laughs> so no, I wanted to be a computer programmer. Um, when I was in year 11 and 12, so I took on three unit computers and um, subjects that would complement that which is really odd now because I, I think computers are one of my most hated things in my day-to-day <laughs> life. Look, I used to do quite well at school. I think when you get reasonable marks at school, you, you kind of think, oh, you know, you'd be a, a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. But It never crossed your mind? No, it had yeah. never crossed my mind. So I wanted to do computers. And as I was getting, you know, better marks, I contemplated, you know, maybe I could do something Um, like law. Um, Didn't really know much about it. I didn't do legal studies at school. It was actually my mother that said to me, you know, look, um, you really have a love of music. Why don't you go off to university and do music? Which is, again, something I'd never 
contemplated. Did you play an instrument? Yeah, I've played piano for for forever um, since I was very little and electronic organ. And then in later years, I took up drums as well. So <laughs> yeah, she said to me, why don't you go off and do um, music at university? And I wasn't 100% sold on that as well. So what I actually ended up doing was I went into uni doing um, law um, and chose to do a double degree. So I did ended up doing a, a Bachelor of Arts in music um, and a Bachelor of Laws at the same time. So gone on to study a few other things since then as well but um yeah that's how I ultimately got into law in this convoluted sort of story of computer programming and um yeah I'm glad I didn't do that in the end and where'd you grow up did you grow up always on the central coast or no not at all so um I grew up in a little town in New South Wales called Lithgow um I know Lithgow yeah on the way to Bathurst yeah there's Blue Mountains yes yeah so bottom of the Blue Mountains um and on the way to Bathurst, yeah, um, there's not very much there at all. So really little small country town, um, just went to a local public school there, 20,000 people. I did know that I would never stay there, but I'd never much contemplated where I would go after leaving there. A lot of my you know, friends and people that I went to school with, they all elected to go to Charles Sturt in Bathurst to study at university there if they went to university. To be honest, I was, I think, one of the three that left the town and, and um, went off to Sydney to go off to university to study something that, that Charles Sturt University in Bathurst didn't offer. Yeah, and I came from a very small um, country town and, to be honest, that didn't have a lot of uh, opportunity. It's um, three hours from Sydney, three hours from the beach. So, um, yeah, for me to go to university in Sydney, it was really quite difficult back then. In, in fact, I look back on it now and don't even know how I could possibly How you got have, out of there? Well, I, I just don't even know how I could possibly have um, travelled to university. I, I used to drive each day, so I would drive... You drive each day yeah. from Lithgow to, to Sydney? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's when I look back on it, it's absolutely insane. I don't know how I yeah. found the time to do it or, or did it, but um, every morning we'd start at five in the morning um, and I would drive somewhere between two and three hours to get there. Um, I used to travel between campuses, so I'd do as many subjects as I could in the morning, travel across to a different campus for the afternoon, um, and I'd finish at 10 o'clock at night. So it wasn't unusual for my days at university to be 5 a.m. until 12 p.m., and then I'd get up and do it all again. Yeah. Um, that, that sets you up well for a future legal career where you're doing massive so hours. <laughs> yeah. I've watched Suits. I know that oh, they're I watch Suits as well. I know that they're there late, late at night. <laughs> favourite, um, favourite, yeah. And have you, Christy, have you always specialised in, in family law? Look, when I went off to university, so as I said, you know, um, my mother had suggested that I go into uni doing, you know, something with music. And I did always love music. And I thought in my world it would be great if I could somehow combine music with law. So when I went off to law school, I actually had a real interest and passion for maybe doing something like intellectual property, you know, copyright and contracts and music business law. That's what um, really interested me. Um, And it wasn't until I was studying that I actually discovered things like, you know, family law and criminal law and, you know, the commercial world that I'd never been exposed to in a small country town like Lithgow. Um, And to be honest, I can't tell you what it was that exactly interested me about family law, apart from the fact that it involved people and all of the different cases and all of the different stories. When I was studying family law, it 
really intrigued me and I wanted to learn more. So that's kind of what led me to um, going into a world of family law. Would you say it is one of the more emotional and because you're dealing with families breaking up, you're dealing with kids and custody and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's it's incredibly difficult to work with every day. There are so many lawyers out there, you know, if you speak among the profession, there are so many lawyers out there that don't want to do family law. Because of that reason? Because of that reason, yeah. And Now, I have my own family now. I'm married and I have two children. So I think it hits home even more dealing with those emotional situations when you have your own children because you understand everything that is at risk to lose and what what families are going through in that really difficult time. So I think it's even more important that the lawyer that they have acting for them understands, you know, that everything that they've ever worked for, everything that they've ever worked for as a family, whether that be children or finances, you know, is at stake and needs to be, you know, hopefully separated in an amicable way where if you do have children, you're able to effectively move forward and co-parent those children together. But yeah, it's, it's a really difficult area. I see, you know, I see some happy families, you know, that go through the process and can deal with everything amicably. That wouldn't be the norm, though, would it? No, it's no. not. So I, I do see both extremes. So I see, you know, some horrendous things that, you know, I wouldn't even want to speak about. But, yeah, I, you know, there, there are a lot of bitter people that are involved in family law disputes. Yeah. With the amount of bitterness that I see, I do like to try and say to clients, at one point this is somebody that you loved, and usually loved enough to have children with. And I think, you know, on that issue, there needs to be or there needs to have been real love that then creates that real hatred. Um, because you you basically, if you think about it, you can't hate someone normally mm. unless there's been some sort of love that has been severed in the first place. Um, you might not like somebody, you might be dismissive of somebody out in the real world, but when you've been in that relationship with someone that meant something to you. Yeah. I think that it's that love that has been severed that ultimately- You say this to a lot of- Creates the bitterness. People that come to you see you for the first time. I do, yeah. Probably a lot of anger and Mm -hmm. uh, that's the first thing you say. Let's delve, if you don't mind, let's delve more into your speciality, what you do and your strategy and the way you handle that. It's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, coming from an emotional place the first time you meet a client, but looking at your website and reading a couple of things about you, it is all about strategy. You talk about, I'm across Sun Tzu's Art of War and there was a book that uh, I read way back in the 90s too, which is linked to that, was Thick Face Black Heart. Mm-hmm. So it, th- there is a degree of strategy as well. And you describe yourself on your website as a separation strategist. Generally speaking, um, people, when I first speak with them, they have two burning questions. Yeah. Um, they are generally the same. So it What are those questions? Yeah, it doesn't really matter who I speak to. It's, it's these same two things. So the first one is always, um, what are my rights and entitlements? So that might be with respect to their children or with respect to property. And then there's the second thing that um, basically everybody asks, but nobody wants to talk about the fact that they do ask it, which is how do I win? And I do think- they, Did they use that word, win? It, it can be either way. So some people, yes, you know, how do I win? Um, at the other end, it can be, how can I make sure I don't lose? How can I make sure I don't lose everything? How can I make sure I don't get screwed over? Um, but effectively, it's still the same question. How do I win or how do I get the outcome that I want? And they're those same two questions. 
pretty much with every client, irrespective of whether it's an amicable agreement that they reach or whether it's you know a bitter dispute that goes on for years. Everybody seems to have those same two questions. Mm. And then what's your response to them? Rights and entitlements is something that takes a little while to go through. So it takes about an hour to go through, which I don't have right now to explain how that works. Um, But that's definitely the easier of the two questions. But the short answer is in divorce, no one wins. And the reason for that is that you start a relationship and you build everything together, whether that be you know, your property, your finances, you know, you buy houses, you sell houses, and your children and family. So when you separate, not one party can have everything. Mm. You can't have 100% of your children and 100% of your property. Do a lot of people or clients that come to see you, Christy, have that in their mind? That they want everything? That they want everything? Is that because that the way you've you've explained it really calmly and that is an unreasonable perception. Mm. So is there an understanding when you explain that? You know, you've built this, this has been a, a collaborative project for X amount of years. You can't take everything. I think it only dawns on people when you say that. A lot of people that I speak to do have expectations that they're going to walk away with, you know, the children for the majority of the time or, you know, 85% plus of, you know, houses and assets and so forth. And when you sort of ask the question as to why, why have you come up with that figure or that percentage or where did, where did that come from? And it's only then when you actually have this conversation with people that they start to realise that they haven't really put a lot of thought into that. And it comes back to that same thing. You know, these are people that once loved each other. You loved each other enough to have children together. So we need to work out an amicable way to make this work Mm. Um, and that's where strategy comes in as well so what we want to be able to do for our clients is get them as much as possible of what they want and need and desire because you know their happiness is ultimately important but at the same time if you have children they have to come first Mm. so we need to weigh up um, a series of things you know their happiness but you know, ultimately there's two parties in a relationship. And when a relationship breaks down, if there's children, the children need to be able to um, spend time with both mum and dad in the majority of situations. It's not always like that. You know, not everybody separates amicably and there can be things like domestic violence and so forth that sway those decisions. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the time you do have to actually speak with, you know, clients in the first instance and point those things out that there are no winners in divorce um, for them to actually stop and think about Mm. what needs to occur. And yet you've written a couple of books and and the word win is in the title of the books that you've written. Yeah. Is that uh, you explain it then within the book that that, actually there are no winners Mm -hmm. in the outcome. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I have I have written um, two books. Um, they're both called Divorcing Your Ex. One of the books is How to Win Against Him in Divorce and yeah. the other is How to Win Against Her in Divorce. Um, as I said, there are no winners in divorce. And the reason that those books got that title is exactly what we talked about a moment ago, which is that there's those two burning questions. What are my rights and entitlements? Yeah. Um, and the book does deal with um, how to work out your rights and entitlements and, and give you an idea of what goes through my mind when I'm you know, chatting to a client in the first instance and how to work that out. 
And it addresses the other question that, you know, is the burning question on everybody's lips, but nobody wants to be seen to ask it, which is how do I win? Yeah. Or in the majority sense, how do I make sure I don't yeah. lose? I'm sure this is something you've heard as well, uh, or, and, or even seen on social media in terms of dads, men. Mm-hmm. Is the family law court skewed towards women? I hear this a lot yeah. and I see it a lot. The short answer is I don't think they are. No. And I know there would probably be a lot of people out there that would dispute that, and particularly dads that don't see their kids of course. because I see a lot of people yeah. in, um, in that circumstance. I don't think the family court as such is skewed toward one side or the other, but one of the things that does affect who the children spend time with or live with is what they've previously done. So a lot of households, even though you know we live in the current year that we're in, you know, a lot of households do have a situation where dad still um, goes to work and earns the majority of the money. And if you have young children, mum often works, you know, part-time and looks after the the kids or, or stays at home primarily with the children. And when there's a separation that occurs and that's the family situation that's happening at home at that time, the court will often leave the children in the care of mum, being their primary carer, the person that they've spent the majority of their time with, every day Hmm. Um, and it might not seem fair but what the court are trying to do is make sure that they establish that routine for the kids of what they already know and the court also look at things like if mum's at home and available to look after the kids there's little point in giving them to dad if dad's at work um, to place them into after school care or something along those lines so yeah I don't think it's skewed one way or the other but I think that there are circumstances such as that yeah that give the appearance that mum always gets the children or mum always wins. You see, with a division of property, whoever has the children living with them primarily often receives a greater amount of the asset pool to compensate them, if you like, um, for the fact that they have their children living with them the majority of the time between now and when the children are 18. Mm. So again, in property, because Mm. there is that extra division, because mum often has the children, um, it can give that illusion to the general public as well that it is skewed one way or the other. You see, again, sitting here having this calm conversation about that Mm. or about this particular issue, it seems very reasonable and very fair. But in the heat of battle, if you like, if you're sitting across the table from a partner and I imagine you would explain this or the the judge would explain this in a a very same way, tempers, the people aren't reasonable at this point, are they? No, And this is where that kind of gets out of hand and skewed in terms of of how the division happens or the separation of property and the custody of kids and stuff. Mm. But it all kind of makes sense when, when we talk about it calmly and practically sure. of, how, <laughs> of how things are going to work. But there must be, but you are dealing with emotion then, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we've got to take that into consideration as well. Why do cases, no specific case, but you, you mm. tend to hear about these kind of things drag on for, for years and years and years? I mean, what is it the dispute over property and custody? Is this kind of why cases like this can drag out for so long? Yeah, I think I've got a wishy-washy answer to that as mm. well, I think. If parties are amicable, they could literally resolve their matter. Can in- I ask you this quick question? Because I've thought about this yeah, often because no, we all know okay. people that are splitting up. Have you ever, if, if you're ever in a situation, two people come to a, a really, uh, you know, a, a calm, amicable decision, they go, do you know what? You can have the house or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then is there any need at all for lawyers at that point? They go, let's organise, this is what we're going to do with the kids. This is when I'll see them. This is when you see them. I understand that you work in mm-hmm. these hours and I work this hours. You take the house. Has that 
Is there any need at all for solicitors to get involved at that stage? Yeah, the, the short answer is there, there still is. There still is. Yeah, and, you know, whether it's me or any other lawyer, you know, I'm, I'm still going to give you the same response. So with things like property, there are considerations that people don't think of, and this is why you engage lawyers to assist you with that. So, for instance, if you were to have a property that was in joint names, and let's say we're, we're transferring the property to to dad. You need to pay stamp duty on the sure. transfer of right. that property in transferring it to dad. A way around paying stamp duty, which might cost you, you know, 15000 it might cost you 50000 depending on the value of the property, is to enter into what's known as terms of settlement and consent orders. So basically, it's a written agreement, like a written contract between the two of you that literally says dad is to get the house. If that document goes off to the court and gets a stamp, then it comes back and there's no need to pay the stamp duty on that okay. transfer. You know, something like that might cost you a few thousand dollars to draft, but it also might, co- you know, save you $50,000 yeah, 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 in sure. the long run. Sure. And it's not just properties. I mean, well, there's the, you know, there could be investment properties and so forth. So it might not be just the matrimonial home. It might be, you know, there might be 10 properties to distribute. There might be two. But again, all of those stamp duty costs add up. It's also things like um, motor vehicles. If you've got, you know, he might have both cars in his name or vice versa. Um, And when you're transferring one, there's stamp duty that's payable on that as well. So coming to that agreement avoids those extra costs that people don't think about. It's usually best in any event to put some orders in place. Um, And it doesn't mean that you need to go off to court to yell and scream and argue. It can be by agreement and you get a lawyer to draw up a simple agreement that that goes to the the court and gets a stamp as such. Um, It's important that you do things like that because if you're going to move forward in a new relationship or new partner or or repartner rather or a new marriage, the last thing that you want is, you know, your ex, wife or husband, putting out their hand in five or 10 years from now, when you're, you know, repartnered, you've got new kids, you know, you're living a whole new life and you didn't deal with your- Future-proofing. Yeah, basically. Yeah. No, no, it's that's like, a, we haven't thought yeah, of it. Yeah, it's like enough. an insurance policy yeah, yeah, for yeah. the future. I understand. But I've, I've seen it happen before, you know, where people remarry and they have new children and they've got a whole new family and then mm. an ex-partner that hasn't- um, you haven't come to an agreement or received a court order, um, comes forth and puts out their hand um, for a significant amount of money. Yeah. Um, and that can be devastating. Is there a, what do they call that in the legal, like a time frame or what do they call that? Yeah. Like after a certain time, then the, the yeah. ex-partner's got no... No claim. Is that true? Is that... Um, the legislation does say that there is a period of time. Um, You've been separated for five or six years and your partner's remarried and then suddenly you go, hang on a hang minute. On. Yeah. To be honest, though, so even though you only have a couple of years to deal with this, yeah. I have seen cases on numerous occasions um, where somebody comes forward and puts out their hand. Um, and the la- the uh, the court has discretion as to whether to allow that to occur. And to be honest, in almost 20 years, um, I've never seen the court say that they can't proceed with that, meaning the court will allow somebody... Generally, yes. Yeah, generally, to come forward and still receive their entitlements from that relationship. Yeah. So, yeah, basically the person um, seeks leave of the court and says, look, you know, I I want what I'm entitled to from that relationship. And the court generally says, yes, I'll allow that and... and um, They'll hear it. Yeah. For what so, reason? Sorry, I, I did start to ask you and you started to answer uh, before um, right. and I cut you off. But um, for what reasons would cases go on and on and on and on? And I imagine the longer that these disputes happen, the more bitter all these parties are involved. I imagine a big one is probably custody. Children, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's um it majority is children's matters that that drag on. You know, I've I've had you know, I've been practicing for about eighteen years or something now, so or I've been in law since for eighteen years. Um I've had cases myself that drag on for three and four years. My goodness. Yeah, and it, it's not um, something that you want, but when you find yourself in that court process or when our clients find themselves in that court process, it's difficult to get out of it, particularly if the other side is being unreasonable. Generally speaking, it's always children. It's always children's matters that run this really long time in court. It's so emotional. Um, you know, one party is often trying to protect the children from the other, um, and it may be valid that they need to do that. I wanted to ask you about that as well, whether mm-hmm. you've seen, and I'm sure there's been cases like that, uh, parents using children as pawns in the game. Yeah, I do see it. And unfortunately, I see it you know, far too often than you would ever want to say that you see it. I think it's that same thing again, where there's been significant you know, love between the parties. It's been severed. So it might be you know, through one party cheating, something like that, where there was real love and then suddenly it's been cut. Um, and, you know, one party's looking at getting back at the other party. So it's not unusual in those situations to see, yeah, children, unfortunately, be used as pawns. Um, if I think that's happening with, you know, one of our clients, I'd like to think that it doesn't because of the advice I give in the first instance. Um, my books are very much about, you know, not engaging in this kind of behaviour because it does lead into long and protected court proceedings that are you know, costly um, and emotionally draining for everybody. Um, but ultimately, there are people that that do this. And again, that's where strategy comes in, because if you can see that the other side is using children or using the children as pawns, mm. you need to find a way to counter them doing that. Um, I've seen this happen that many times that Although I don't have a crystal ball, you can almost tell your client what they're about to do next by the fact that I've seen it a thousand times before. What their partner's about to do next. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah right. sorry. Have you got some stats on you in terms of here we are in this date in 2019? Mm-hmm. The rate of separation and divorce? Yeah, divorce itself hovers about the same. Um, so it's around a 50%, so it's a little over 50%. So what kind of time frame is that? Um, I'm not sure. So in the last... To be honest. 20, 30, 40 years, most marriages ending in divorce, 50%. And that yeah, hasn't changed. It hasn't changed very much. In terms of um, since when I've been practising, it's it's hovered around that 50% right. mark. It definitely has gone up, so in the last 18 years. Yeah. Um, but it still yeah hovers over that 50% mark. We need to be really careful when we're talking only about divorce because there are, of course, people that get married and they get the piece of paper to say that they're married and then those are the people that divorce, that yeah. receive the piece of paper yeah. to say that they're, they're divorcing. Do you want a de facto relationship? That's right. Oh, okay. So you've got to be careful with the figures in terms of um, relationships that break down. So basically, um, statistically, so I know that this is not the case with everybody, but statistically, 
um, we go through a new relationship every seven years. So if you sort of think in, you know, your workplaces or with colleagues or friends, family, every seven years, somebody is going to go through a... Is this where the seven-year itch came from? I think so. <laughs> I'm not sure, but it could be. Yeah. Um, yeah, but everybody goes through a relationship breakdown um, every seven years. Now, yeah. that could be, you know, it could be a young love where you're you know, you're with somebody for a few months and that relationship breaks Relationships down. in general. That's so right. Marriage, de facto, whatever. Hey, while yeah. we're on it, because we'll talk about de facto relationships, this is probably another, I don't know, a talking point you hear at a barbecue or a social occasion. Mm-hmm. People that are in de facto relationships, living together, whatever, uh, they're not married, they don't have the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. But, the, the you know, if, if, if the topic comes up, they're going to split. I say, well, what, what what are my rights here in this? You know, we're not married, mm. but can you clarify that? Because the, the rules are the same after a period of time. Is that true or is that false? Um, or is it a bit of a grey area? It is a little bit of a grey okay. area, but it's, it's generally true. So I'll, yeah. I'll try and articulate it in a timely manner, I suppose. It used to be the case that there was a clear line between uh, de facto relationships and marriages and that they were very different. And if there was a separation, then in simple terms, de facto relationships with property division, they only, and when I say they, the court, only looked at contributions, who came with what, who did what during the relationship, and there was nothing else considered. So it used to be quite simple. That changed if there was a child involved, though, and if there was a child that was born into that de facto relationship, it was then viewed the same as a marriage. Right. So now here we are over on the other side with a marriage. It looks at contributions in terms of who came with what, uh, a different type of contribution in terms of who did what during the relationship. But marriages also look at a thing called Section 75.2 of the Family Law Act. It's good bedtime reading if you wanted to have a look at um, that section later. And what Section 75.2 does is makes an adjustment in favour of one of the parties for some circumstances that have occurred during the relationship. So without going too far into sections and legislation and all of those uninteresting things, where you normally see Section 75.2 come into effect is where um, there's children So, for instance, if mum has the children live with her full time, more likely than not, mum will receive a greater percentage of the asset pool now to make up for the fact that she has those children. Mm -hmm. And that's Section 75-2, making that authorisation, that that alteration rather, in her favour. So, in terms of what are the rights and entitlements, nowadays we live in a world where de facto relationships are viewed exactly the same as marriages. The only difference is a de facto relationship doesn't become a de facto relationship unless you've been living together for a period of two years. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have any children yeah. and you live together for under two years, it could be viewed that it's you're a little bit different. Like yeah, to, that you're yeah. not in a de facto okay. relationship. It's almost like you're flatmates or friends or sure. something like that. Yeah. So you don't have those same claims yeah. on each other. In saying that, there's really difficult definitions um, in case law of what a de facto relationship is because I've literally seen a case um, years ago where um, the wife or the, 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 the woman in that instance used to spend every second weekend with the man um, and it was actually classified as a de facto relationship. They weren't so, living together? No, they weren't living together. But she was spending every two weeks? Every second weekend. And that was still classified as a de facto relationship? that was classified as a de facto relationship. So it's a really, really grey area in terms Sounds of whether like you're flatmates and friends or whether you're in a de facto relationship. Yeah. 
Um, but the general rule is if you live together for a period of two years, then it's classified as yeah. a de facto relationship. And then children can change the dynamics and the definition of that, that relationship. Correct. Um, when you mentioned asset pool before, can I ask you, this is another one that comes up you know, in social occasions. Sure. Does superannuation come into that asset pool? Yeah, it most certainly does. So every asset that you own comes into that um, asset pool. These preserved funds that people are putting away <laughs> yes. for their twilight years, mm-hmm. if a split occurs in their 20s or 30s or whatever, mm-hmm. the, uh, that, that money, they delve into the super. They definitely is do. Is that right? Yeah. And what's can you give kind of a generic... This is this is none of this is specific advice today, mm-hmm. but a generic. What what happens to that super? So I, I imagine you've got you know the the the, the wife's got a, a lump of super there, and the husband's probably got a little bit more. Mm-hmm. What happens? It depends on how the parties want to sort everything out. But look, it can be the case that the husband keeps his super and the wife keeps hers, or it can be the case that they do what's called a superannuation splitting order, where effectively. Um, the wife, in that instance, would receive a proportion of the husband's superannuation. Um, and again, would that be defined by how long they've been together or it doesn't matter? It, it is. So everything in a division of property is still based on contributions, right. as in who came in with what, who did what during the relationship, yeah. and also those funds, Section 75, two factors that we were talking about where there's an adjustment. <laughs> right. So if you're together for a really short period of time, you know, yeah. is the husband or wife going to take their other party's superannuation, you know, in terms of take half of it? No, they're not. But the longer parties are together, it can actually be a real thing to consider. Yeah. You know, if you've got um, parties that have been together for 20 years, then, you know, is half or more of their super up for grabs? Absolutely it is. Yeah, because I've heard this as well in a, in a scenario like this. Um, generally, would you say women have a, a, a smaller super uh, – you know, pool than pool, the males. Yes, yeah, uh, and and it's it's likely or highly likely that they're disadvantaged in mm-hmm. in a circumstance where the split with the husband's aunt. Mm-hmm. So I guess that compensation has to happen. Yeah, in a fair. In a fair world. Yeah, 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 all right. That's where that Section 75 sure. too comes back into play. So a lot of the time, you know, when children are very young, mum does stay home. Um, and look after those children. So whether it just be, you know, through maternity leave. So, so her contributions have stopped for a period of time. Correct. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Can I ask you a funny one? Uh, sure. Pets. Do they, do they often come up? Uh, dog, cat, bird. Yeah. Cust- is it called custody when you're talking about? No, we don't. Yeah, we don't put them in the same category as children. Um, in what do you call it? In saying that, we don't put them in the same category as property either. So to be honest, they don't really have a category um, in terms of actual legislation with respect to pets and how we divide them. Um, but in saying that, I do have a lot of couples, you would be surprised, um, yeah. that separate uh, pets as they separate their children. So you have sort of the, the custody dog. Oh, they spend time. With- they spend time with both parents yeah. and they go between the houses with the children. Um, yeah, not so much with birds and cats, but, no, but with dogs. Um, with I dogs. I imagine. Yeah, we, we definitely um, see a lot of custody dogs that go back and forth with the kids. Yeah. And any kind of bitterness or fights that have erupted over who's going to get the dog? Um. Yeah, yeah. During your time, (laughs) I've seen that, and I've seen the opposite as well, which is I've been left with this dog, or I've been oh, they they, they don't want the dog. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want this animal. I never wanted this cat. I don't. Probably there for the kids though, maybe. 
Yeah. They've taken yeah. the pet for the kids. Mm. Yeah, but right. I, I definitely have seen um, yeah, people um, complain about the fact that they have been left with an animal and they're therefore yeah. required to support the animal after one party has left as well. So uh, the, the, the whole thing seems, you know, it's complex and um, it's emotional. You clearly love your work. Mm-hmm. What, what do you get out of it? At the end of the day, I know that it sounds a little bit cliche, I suppose, that you say, you know, I just want to help people. But if you actually knew, you know, what I go through each day or what you go through in a lifetime being a family lawyer, it has to be the only reason. Because if you think about it like this, you know, if I act for mum in a matter, I can guarantee you dad doesn't like me at all. You know, imagine that's the case in any scenario. And and <laughs> vice versa. But the difficulty with that is, you know, I'll be at the shops with my husband or children and you'll see the person from the other side that doesn't like you at all. And the only reason they don't like you is that you're doing a job. Mm. Does that trouble you? Do you get upset by that or you have to brush it off? It's Yeah, look, you know, I've done this for sort of 18 years. You have to, um, you have to brush it off. And it doesn't bother me as such now. But in saying that, there has to be a payoff for what it is that you do and it has to be that you love what you do and that you get to see the families that you can help. help. Yeah. yeah, where, you know, they do have amicable settlements. I literally have some clients that have purchased houses down the road from each other. You know, they live two and three houses down the road so their kids can go back and forth in the afternoon. You know, they can have dinner with mum or dad mm. or, and they can do, you know, their, their dinosaur assignment or whatever it is mm. with the other party. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's great to be able to see those things. Um, yeah. And I suppose, yeah, you do. You get the, the warm and fuzzy feeling when you can see you know, a family that you've helped and that they're okay. Um, and also, you know, I I do say to people in in the first um, discovery session that we have with them or initial conference as other law firms term them, that, you know, this will end and there will be a light at the end of tunnel and you, you know, will meet somebody else, you know, someday when you're ready to do that. Um, and to be honest, I love seeing that. You know, you see someone and then five years later you'll see them on Facebook or something and they're repartnered and they're happy. Mm. And that's all that you really want for them. Yeah. Um, I suppose at heart I'm maybe a rescuer where I want to see, you know, people happy and I don't like it when people are sad. And I think if I wasn't that and if I wasn't actually quite strong um, and didn't have that emotional payoff where you can help people, I don't think I'd do what I do. Yeah. Because What are you doing in your downtime? I know you said you watch Suits, but I would think that you would want to get away from yeah. legal dramas. <laughs> <laughs> um, to be honest, that's the only legal show that um, that I watch. Well, good, so you don't watch Law and Order or No, like I, don't, I, don't, I don't watch any police shows or, um, um, yeah, or law shows or anything, and generally I dislike them immensely. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, Suits, I do like Suits. Um, what do I do in my downtime? I have a two and a three-year-old, so um, they take up the majority of my downtime. Um, but I do some other things as well. Um, I play piano. I make sure I play piano. Are you still playing piano? Every Good. day. Yeah. yeah I, I do that every day. It might only be for uh, 60 seconds and it might be with two kids climbing over me, but yeah. I make sure I do that every day. Um, I also make sure I read every day. So, again, it might be a paragraph. It Can I ask how you do two that with uh, two kids like that? You know, I, I, this is really embarrassing. I've mm-hmm. got a 10-year-old and uh, I say to people, I haven't read a book since Max was born mm-hmm. from cover to cover. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't have the time. 
Yeah, I, I don't have the time either. <laughs> when do you read? Um, I read. Though you're a lawyer, you have to read, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I haven't read an actual book in terms of... Um, Work of fiction? Yeah, nothing. (laughs) So the only type of books that I read nowadays are things like, um, you know, Tony Robbins or at the the moment I'm reading um, Franklin Covey, The um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Oh, you love all those too? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. no, I I very much love them. So, look, I make sure that I make time every day. And that's what I said. Literally, it could be a paragraph. um, It could be two pages. Um, in terms of how do I do that with a two and a three-year-old? So um, my husband's very good of an evening. He um, will often take one or sometimes even both kids um, downstairs. We've got a, a big cinema room down there so the kids can have a bash on the drums and um, or play on the piano and so forth. And I get left upstairs with our um, other grand piano and my book. Mm. So I might only do that for five minutes, but... You'd be surprised just reading three paragraphs or something from a book. It can actually change your mood substantially from, you know, feeling anxious or angry or tired or mm. all of those things to actually bring you back down to reality. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it actually... Well, especially those books that you're, you're reading as mm. well. I remember reading those. I go, I actually, one of the early books, I, Zig Ziglar, remember him? Yes, yeah. yeah, that, yeah. But that was from the 50s or 60s, I think, mm. the old books. Chris, I really appreciate your time coming in and, and having a chat, a very generic chat about what you do. And and uh, hopefully, you know, if people listen to the podcast and there might be some bits and pieces they can cherry pick out of the chat. So thank you so much for coming in and having a chat. Thank you. Christy Perdrio from DivX Lawyers was my guest today on Conversations in Noosa. I hope you got something out of that. If you did and you think there are family members or friends of yours that also might uh, be able to uh, get some information out of today's podcast, please feel free to share it about on your social media networks. And if you uh, downloaded, streamed or subscribed to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Wooshka, feel free to rate and review our podcast conversations in Noosa, we'd really appreciate it. Until next time, take care.